There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. Wintry February night, the present. Order of events, a phone call from a frightened woman, notating the arrival of an unidentified flying object. Then the checkout you just witnessed with two state troopers verifying the event, but with nothing more enlightening to add beyond evidence of some tracks leading across the highway to a diner. You've heard of trying to find a needle in a haystack? Well, stay with us now and you'll be part of an investigating team whose mission is not to find that proverbial needle. No, their task is even harder. They've got to find a Martian in a diner. And in just a moment, you'll search with them because you've just landed in the Twilight Zone. All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema, the Twilight Zone series. I'm your host, Jimbo, and joined again by the real Martian. Yes, 80s E coming to you from a diner on the northwest side of Indianapolis. Don't lie, it's probably a White Castle over there. It's actually a closet inside my house. <laughs> this is true. We've talked about that before. Yes. Uh, so today we'll be talking about uh, Season 2, Episode 28, Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? And I know Eric and I both have differing opinions on this one, so it's going to be a fun one as usual. Um, yep. I will say this. Even though this is a more serious episode, I, w- I would say that this the comedy in this works for this episode. Usually when Twilight Zone tries, I agree. To, tries to do comedy, it's terrible. But this has some funny stuff in it if you pay attention and listen throughout the whole episode. So without further ado, Eric, let's take it away. Okie doke. Uh, this is the Twilight Zone season number two, episode 28, entitled Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? It was directed by Montgomery Pittman. It was written by Rod Serling. And its original air date was May the 26th, 1961. And of course, we all know that that brings us to our most beloved segment in the program, in which we call On This Day in History. All right, for On This Day in History, for. May the 26th, let's go to 1963 and the 15th Emmy Awards. Wow, it was only the 15th Emmy Awards. Uh, The Dick Van Dyke Show, it won for Outstanding Program Achievement in the Field of Humor for the 15th Emmy Awards. All right. Jimbo, you a fan of the Dick Van Dyke Show? It was all right. It was all right. Dick Van Dyke in general. Did you see him the other day? Uh, I, I, I think they t- oh, toured what, him around Disney World. Where the barbershop quartet sang to him? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was pretty cool. But, uh, I mean, I liked him in Mary Poppins. He's okay to you? Yeah, he's, yeah. Just, he's just okay. He's kind of he's, over He's kind of over the top, you know? Yeah, he's uh, he's got to be close to 100 by now. Or maybe he is 100. I know he's uh, rapidly approaching 100. but uh, So that was kind of cool to see him. You know, get a tour around uh, Disney World and the Barbershop Quartet. I think it it was sort of like a remake from the Mary Poppins movie. Uh, yeah, they sung. But the, moving on, they sung the "It's a Lovely Day with You, Mary" or whatever when he was in the uh, uh, red and white striped in the hat from Mary Poppins. Yeah. All right. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot as far as you know uh, on this day information trivia, if you will. But I do have some birthdays, some famous birthdays. So on May 26th, 1907, the Duke, John Wayne, was born. All right, so May 26th, 1907. (laughs) My grandpa is probably mad at me in heaven right now for saying boo to the Duke because that was his favorite. All right, well, maybe you'll like this one. So May the 26th, 1913, Peter Cushing, the English actor uh, famous for Star Wars, Tarkin. Yeah, so he was born in 1913. And then uh, 
May the 26th, 1939, we have Brent Musburger, American sportscaster, CBS Sports, the NFL Today, ESPN, ABC, and et cetera, et cetera. He's been on various sports uh, television broadcasts. All right. Here's another outside of TV and movie uh, trivia for May the 26th, 1927. So we're going back a little ways. Uh, the Ford Motor Company, it produces the last... Model T Ford 10 Lizzie. It was the 15th million or 15 millionth Model T. Wow, 15 million of those things. So they sold their last one in 1927 and it was called the Model T 10 Lizzie. Do you know why it was called the 10 Lizzie, Jimbo? You have um, any idea? I'm assuming because that's what Lizzie Borden drove around after she axed up her family. Is that right? Uh, <laughs> No, no. Okay. But, what uh, about what about what about wasn't the uh, Lizzie the uh, the milk the the cow and the milk uh, wasn't that like the Lizzie milk? That was Elsie. Oh, wasn't it? Was I, it I, took a, I took a shot. Well, I got a. We've got everything on this podcast. So I'm going to give you a little background for this. Ten Lizzie. All right. We're we're a variety uh, show here. So in back in the old days. Uh, in 1922, there was a championship race held at Pikes Peak, Colorado. Have you ever been to Pikes Peak? No. No, me either. So, back in those days, they would have races, you know, for the, the various car companies would do races. So, this guy named Noel Bullock, he named, he was entered into the race and he called his Model T the Old Liz. And since Old Liz looked worse for wear as it was unpainted and lacked a hood, and many spectators compared Old Liz to a tin can, it got the name Old Tin Lizzie. So I saw that name and I was like, hmm, I'm going to do a little digging on that. So the old Model Ts were called Tin Lizzies because of this guy, Noel Bullock's race car, basically, at Pikes Peak. So there you go. Did they say why he named it Lizzie, though? Is it like his wife or his mom or something? No, it doesn't say. Just He just named it Old Liz. That's what this article says. So, huh. In 2021, finally, Amazon, and this is May 26, 2021, Amazon says it will buy the 97-year-old film and television studio Metro-Golden-Mayer for a whopping $8.45 billion. So they shelled out a lot of them. I don't know if that deal went through. I never heard it, but uh, that doesn't mean anything. So apparently, they, they had a deal to buy in 2021 Metro Golden Mayor for $8.45 billion. I wonder, a lot of cash. I wonder if that's where Amazon Prime Video got most of their catalog. I would assume that would be a good assumption. Yeah, definitely. All right, so just to wrap up a few minor details back to our episode, let's talk about the production cost for this episode. It actually came in under normal budgetary numbers it came in at $44,750.80 and that probably was due to the fact there really was only one set and that was inside the diner that had to be built and when we adjust that for inflation again it's about tenfold it's uh, $460,000 uh, 485.73 so 460 grand for this episode when we put it in today's dollars a couple of dates uh to be mindful of the dates of rehearsal, only one day of rehearsal for this episode, April the 3rd, 1961, but we have three days of filming. The April, April 1961 would be the 4th, 5th, and 6th were the dates of filming in April of 1961, and that concludes the preliminary items in the episode, Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? Jimbo, will you please take the cast? Sure. <clears throat> Uh, basically, there's only, let's see, seven, probably about ten people in this cast list, um, but they all play a central role. Uh, to me, this episode is more of a like a clue, like who done it or who is it yeah. uh, type of thing. Um, and Erica, just out of the way of reference, do you know that the name, some of the working titles for this episode were The Night of the Big Rain, The Missing Martian, Nobody Here But Us Martians, and also, but they finally um, came up with, will the Royal Marshal please stand up? And that came off of the, uh, based off a TV quiz show, uh, To Tell the Truth, where I guess a famous uh, contestant would try to claim to be the same person. And at the end, the uh, real contestant was asked uh, for the real person to please, would you please stand up? So that's yeah. what the title is based off of. Um, so here we go with the cast. 
You had John Hoyt, who played Ross. Uh, he was in When Worlds Collide in 1951, as well as Attack of the Puppet People, where he played Mr. Franz. Um, you had Gene Willis, Wiley's Willis, I will say. Um, and uh, she played Ethel McConnell. Uh, so she was in, you remember a little movie called Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 1956, where she played nurse Sally Winters. Uh, Jack Elam, who, he is just a wild one if you even look at him. Uh, he's, he's also, he's known for some Westerns, but uh, he played Avery. He was uh, in Once Upon a Time in the West. He was also in a little movie from 1981. Eric, did you ever see The Cannonball Run, where he Absolutely, played yeah. Dr. Nicholas Van Helsing? <laughs> then you had uh, Barney Phillips. He was Haley the bartender, or the cook, if you will. Um, he was in uh, four episodes of The Twilight Zone, but he was also in a little movie called I Was a Teenage Werewolf in 1957. And Eric, do you know who is the star of that movie? Uh, I've forgotten. Michael Landon. Oh, right. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul from Little House on the Prairie. Uh, John Archer played Trooper Bill Paget. Uh, he was in White Heat in 1949. He was also in the Elvis Presley movie Blue Hawaii, where he played Jack Kelvin. Uh, William Kindis, he played Olmstead. Uh, he was in The Twilight Zone. Uh, Morgan Jones played Trooper Dan Perry. He was in one of Eric's favorites, Forbidden Planet in 1956, where he played Crewman Nichols. <laughs> You had Gertrude Flynn, who played Rose Kramer. Uh, she was in A Funny Girl in 1968. Then you had uh, Bill Irwin, uh, played Peter Kramer. Uh, Eric, he was in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles as the yeah. man on the plane. He was also in Home Alone as man at the airport. Yeah. And he was also in one of the great uh, science fiction slash time travel movies, Somewhere in Time, where he played Arthur Bill. Um Basically, when you look at his IMDb page, basically just says, like, I think there's one that says 77-year-old man. Everything was man, yeah. you know what I mean? So he was more of an old man character actor. He uh, he also was in uh, an episode of Seinfeld, too. Like like you said, he was playing a grumpy old man in that episode, too. So right. That, that was kind of how he was typecast later in his uh, acting career. Uh, you had Jill Ellis, where she played Connie Prince. Um, and, you know, the the funny thing about her is I couldn't find hardly any, there was like no information. This was like the only thing she was ever in. I couldn't yep. even find like, I couldn't even find like a biography on her. It was like blank. I was like, well, good for you, Connie. Uh, you had uh, Ron <laughs> Kipling who played George Prince, which was Connie's husband. Uh, he was in the Twilight Zone. And then, yes, you had the legendary Rod Serling, which uh, obviously created the Twilight Zone, wrote a lot of the Twilight Zones. Um, and I will say that when he appears in this, this is an excellent uh, cameo yeah. by Rod at this one of his more uh, famous ones, I would say one of the beautifully well done. So that is your cast of the Twilight Zone. Episode All right, three. thank you, Jimbo. Uh, let's talk about the plot for this episode. After an anonymous phone call about a spaceship that crashed in a frozen wood, two police officers find evidence that the event really happened. Apparently, one alien had walked away from the spot. They walk to a nearby highway cafe. They find a bus with seven passengers waiting for the reopening of a snowed-in bridge. However, the driver says that he only has six passengers, or only had six passengers when he parked the bus. While interrogating the travelers, weird things happened in a diner with the lights switching on and off and the turntable uh, turning on and off. So, with that... All right, so when we get to the uh, actual episode of uh, this opening shots of the episode, we're we're it's interesting, and I have this in my trivia, I think somewhere along the way that uh, most I don't know about most, but a lot of the money was spent on snow for this. Uh, now, did this you th episode. did you think it was real snow, or did you think it was like asbestos? I don't know what they used. Uh, I think they used to use. I, I thought I read somewhere that they used to use soap. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. They, they, some kind of soap and fan system that they used to use. But uh, I'm jumping ahead, but the, the soap actually costs like $600. I'm, I'm saying soap. I mean snow. The snow that they use is like $600 of the budget, which was a lot. So uh, the opening uh, shots are like 
scenery shots. You know, it kind of sets the mood and the snow was falling in the woods and you had that electronic wobbling sound from the old 60s sci-fi movies. Uh, they use that sound for to illustrate the, I guess, the UFO or whatever. And then a hard, you know, loud cracking crash landing sound. And then the next cutaway is of the two troopers and they're checking on an earlier report about a UFO in the area of Hook's Landing. So someone's called in a, a an unidentified flying object episode. And so the trooper, uh, you know, gets on his CB radio and calls the base and explains that they're checking it out. And they see that there are trees that are knocked down and that something has hit the pond and it's probably a meteor. But hold on, one of the troopers says that there are footprints here. So the troopers see a bus in the distance in front of a diner and they want to make sure uh, or try to find out where those footprints lead. Did you, so did, you, did you happen to notice the name on the bus? Yeah, we get to that in the trivia too. Uh, I guess it was a Cayuga, which was the production company right. for the Twilight It's always zone. snuck in Cayuga. there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it was... Um, on the side of the bus. I guess maybe in the original cut, you couldn't see it when it was originally aired, but they remastered it or blue, put it on Blu-ray and somehow digitally enhanced it maybe or something. I think I read somewhere and so that you could see the actual Cayuga on the side of the bus after they, you know, remastered it. So the troopers decide they're going to head over and they want to find out where those footprints lead. And then as you discussed earlier jimbo rod steps into frame out from in front he was actually in front of a very large stone i thought that was cool so the troopers sort of uh, the camera pans and the troopers kind of go behind the stone and then rod steps out and does his famous intro and uh that, that that was a really good intro and of course i'll stick the intro segment into the episode here um then the next scene opens that's this is like scene uh, four, they are the troopers are outside, and this is the part where they pass the bus, and Jimbo referenced earlier, and then they step inside of the diner, and this is where we'll be for the, the pretty much the rest of the episode. Uh, the, the the episode is shot inside the diner. I really like the cinematography here as they in, they enter. The camera pans from one side of the cafe to the other. I thought that was a neat effect, taking in all of the passengers, and they're various like characteristics you know what <laughs> makes them unique and i will say up front there isn't a whole lot that i wrote out usually i write like an, an outline for these episodes and sort of follow them but for this episode really the dialogue drives the episode so unless we were to you know speak each part you know it, it's kind of hard to describe the episode because really it is heavily driven by the dialogue so you kind of have to watch it but i will hit some high points as we move along, um, I did like the camera work. So as the troopers come in, uh, he, the, one of the, I think it's the, the lower in rank trooper, not the head trooper says that, uh, there's the bridge out up ahead and it's impassable. He says ice flow is stacked up against it. Another pound of weight and it could be driftwood. So all of these, uh, people here in the diner or the cafe, are sort of stranded in the cafe because the roads are impassable because of this huge snowstorm. But the troopers sort of have a different agenda because they are aware of the report of the UFO and the footprints lead to the, uh, the diner. So they sort of have a different agenda here and trying to figure out who the real Martian is. There a real Martian in this diner. And so it's a series of, interrogation questions by the troopers right let me ask you a question sure what, what were they gonna do <laughs> if there was a march if they there? caught him well, yeah if there was yeah. a march there uh, obviously he survived a, a ufo crash you're not gonna be yeah. able just to take this guy in for questioning yeah yeah that that that's a good question um uh, the the passengers are they're stuck the trooper says they're they're probably going to be here till morning. You know, you need to get some hot food in you, and uh, you know Hoyt, who is uh, John Hoyt, whose character's name is Ross. He's the 
business guy from Boston. He's like, I got to be at a meeting in the morning. Like, I can't be stuck here. Yeah, and um, the senior trooper Paget asks the bus driver if he has a manifest. So there's six people with the bus driver included, right? So he asks the driver if he has a manifest, and the bus driver's like, dude, what do you think is parked out there, a 707? He's like, I don't have a, a manifest. I don't have a people's names or identification. I got a 14-year-old bus that I'm just happy to get any work. You know, they, they told me to pick these people up here, and I'm taking them. Uh, from Hook's Landing to wherever they were going, and uh, that he, but he is certain of one thing: that there were six people that got off the bus and entered the diner, or the, at least there were six people uh, that entered his bus when he took off. But that raises a dilemma because now the trooper says, "Well, there's seven people. That's a big problem. There's seven people in the diner. One of them didn't get off the bus. So now the trooper's job." is to try to determine which one of those seven in the diner is connected to the UFO crashing. And then, and that's where we launch in to the... I mean, I will say one thing about the episode. I didn't really necessarily like it as much as most other people, but the, the dialogue is great in this episode. It drives the episode. And, uh, yeah. So the, the troopers, again, are trying to figure out who is from the UFO crash landing, which... I had to go back and watch again. The troopers basically say that someone called in about an unidentified flying object, and, and now he's talking to Haley, the, the barkeep. Uh, and he, he doesn't actually use the word UFO, but they deduce... That's another thing that's interesting, that the, all the people deduce that it was a flying... I forget who said it. I think it was the old man. I forget his name. Um... Kramer, Peter Kramer is his character's name in the episode. He he says some kind of saucer or something. So I thought that was interesting that they automatically jumped to the conclusion that it was a flying saucer and it couldn't have just been like a regular airplane that someone heard that could have crashed, landed. It was automatically, oh, well, it's a, it's a UFO. And I think that was intentionally done probably by Rod, you know, to move the episode along that these people come to the conclusion, well, it has to be a UFO. And then from there they go, well, it has to be a Martian or a, they called him a monster, you know, like, well, it has to be someone from outer space and another planet. I, that was kind of cool how he kind of tied that all up in a, in a quick fashion. I wish it would have been, I think it would have been better if it would have, it was an hour long episode and sorry, I'm, I'm kind of off on a rabbit trailer, but because they could have, extrapolated those characters out they would have had more time to i don't know jimbo what do you think i felt like it was like a 12 angry men type scenario well pretty soon you're gonna have start uh well the one lady suggests hey well you know all you have to do is couple the people off you put all the couples together and then the rest are right. your are your uh you know suspects if you will right. but even then the one lady you know the newly the newlyweds or whatever she's like Hey, didn't you have a mole on your chin? <laughs> He's like, I've never yeah. had a mole on my chin. And then you have the older couple who've been married what twenty five years or whatever, and uh, they start arguing. So, uh, but but I think for the time limit they had, I think it was really well done. Um, if you went even uh, an hour long, I think you could have dove more into that where the couples, uh, you know, kind of turned on each other and started showing some other mm -hmm. things. I think it would have been it could have been fleshed out a little bit more. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. Uh but suspicions are flying, just like you said at this point. Like, the trooper is, again, asking Haley, the bartender, has there been anybody in here before the bus stopped, right? Because maybe this person just wandered in off the street or whatever, and they've been in the cafe, and the other people on the bus didn't recognize them. And the, uh, Haley says, no, I haven't served anybody since 11 o'clock this morning. I figured the whole bunch got off the bus. He said, the only thing coming down from the sky has been snow all day. Like, I didn't hear any... Uh, any crash or anything uh, suspicious or mysterious in, in the area. Uh, and just about that time, uh, he walks, the trooper walks over to, uh, what's her name, Miss O'Connell or McConnell? I think it's McConnell, the, the dancer lady, and he, he says, can I get some identification? And at that time, the jukebox turns on automatically, right? And let me just go over a few of the 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 phenomenon, I guess, if you will, that, that happened. So uh, the jukebox turns on, the lights flicker, 
And I'm going to say, I've heard other people say that there were ashtrays that, that exploded, but I think they were actually sugar bowls That's that exploded. You were. have to go back and they flipped over. Um, so they were just like little bowls that, you know, your grandmother used to put sugar in. They looked like they exploded and flipped over. Uh, the payphone rings, uh, those are just some of the phenomenon that happened, again, throughout the course of this dialogue and, the, and these police officers are investigating basically each person in the diner to try to come up with any clues well i like when uh they asked the bus or the bus driver's like oh no no she was on the bus and he's like how do you know he's like she's the only one i paid attention to getting on the bus right and there's a (laughs) which is funny at the end end of the episode too i'm sure you saw (laughs) the police officer and the bus driver exchanged a look right when they were loading uh the bus when she got on the bus at the end of that kind of remind me of uh what was it uh billy madison yeah i thought the same thing (laughs) yeah yeah, but at the center of all of these suspicious people is uh, Jack Elam or Avery. He is he uh, he's like the red herring in the episode. Every everyone's attention, well, the audience's attention is supposed to be turned to him. He looks like the most obvious person who would be the real Martian because he's kooky looking. His eyes are going different directions. And I got a little trivia about his looks and all that how that happened uh here in a minute but so he's sort of the plant if you will and jimbo described it very well it's it's almost like an episode of clue uh you're a, a whodunit type of situation or even you could loosely even say it was kind of like the monsters are due on mabel street yeah. and like everyone is suspicious that, that people start turning on each other it was probably a little more light-hearted episode it wasn't as dark as the monsters are due on maple street but it was kind of the same formula well he's even he's even going as far as saying like uh hey this is like what a real ray bradbury or something he's he's throwing in these science fiction words to people and 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 so he's putting the target on his own back but then they start asking like hey who won the world series last year and he's like oh oh yeah let's see i very smart you know (laughs) he gives the score and he was in there like look this it can't be this guy you know what I mean? Unless yeah. they know they're monitoring us or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this pretty much... I, I'm going to kind of wrap it up here because this is kind of what drives, again, the episode. There's a lot of this back and forth. So we come to the end and the phone rings and it's the engineer, uh, the county engineer that, that gives the all good signal to the troop. The trooper answers the payphone and the bridge is good. Um the, the, it's passable so the trooper says we're going to go out ahead in the police car and you can follow in the bus and uh we'll we'll get you guys out of here eric i have a, a, a question for you <clears throat> yep do you think that phone call was placed by the martian to get the people on the bus yes he's he's sinister at the at the core right because he's the one that what, what if you're a martian and you're trying to blend in that was one of my questions and observations why would you be doing all this crazy phenomenon to try to out yourself? I think he's devious, and I think he's... I mean, well, I don't want to give part of the great reveal, the twist at the end, <laughs> because uh, I'll save that for later. But, uh, yeah, I think it was uh, totally on purpose. I think it was actually him impersonating someone. So I guess we could add that to the list of phenomenon, right? He impersonates the county engineer or whatever so i'll add that to the list of phenomenon but going back to jack elam or avery the crazy wild-eyed guy the grandpa old man as he's referred to in the episode uh they as they're loading the bus uh the driver says well i counted seven and the trooper says that's right seven and avery says bet you by the time we get to boston there'll be 17 yeah (laughs) you know he's just saying all kinds of wild off-the-cuff stuff and uh so the passengers load the bus and then in the final scene ross enters the diner alone right he comes back or the guy that was going to boston and here's one question for you that i thought was interesting if you notice right before he walks in there's a shot of the jukebox and a record is being loaded in the jukebox, and it begins playing the record again, seemingly without anyone making a selection. Wouldn't Haley, the bartender, notice that? Right? Well, I mean, or was he doing... Do you think... Here's a, a, a second question to that. 
Do you think Haley was doing some of the uh, phenomenon? Well, sure. Well, okay. I, I mean, it, we get to the end, and I think it was probably Haley. Go ahead and let's wrap it up because it gets interesting yeah. here. So, I mean, yeah. I think it's the bartender, and we'll find out why. Yeah, take it, take it away. What what, what happened? Okay, so you, you tell us. You have uh, what was his name? Uh, not, not Haley. Who's the other guy? Um, who's the old guy? Ross. Ross. Was it? Was it Ross? Yeah. Yeah. The guy so, from Boston. Yeah, yeah. So he he walks in and he sits down at the bar and he's like, "Hey, uh, the bar Haley, the bartender's like, hey, uh, weren't you one of those guys that just left on the bus?" And he's like, "Yeah." He's like. Bad accident, he said. The bridge gave away, and everybody died except me. And this is where he sits down, and you start seeing the big reveal. He sits down, he asks for a cup of coffee, and he starts drinking his coffee. But also, a third hand comes out from the side <laughs> and is, gets a cigarette. You know, puts it in his mouth, and the other hand lights it. Very well done. He said, "What you don't understand, you know, is actually I am the alien." He said, uh, "And you know, my my fellow." Uh, Martians are on their way because he was from Mars. And, you know, yeah. we figured this little out-of-the-distance, you know, place is a nice place to colonize. And this is where you get the other twist that Haley's like, yeah, yeah, I agree, but you're wrong on one thing. Uh, your people aren't coming. He said, "I, t we, you know, we too agree that this yeah. is on Venus. We, the Venusians, if you will, you know, that mm -hmm. this would be a thing. And we've already called our people and your, your Martians have already been intercepted or whatever. So they're not coming. Mm -hmm. And he pulls back his little hat and there's a third eye <laughs> on the middle of his forehead. So with that said, I've got a little trivia on the, uh, the third hand and the eye, if you will, from my great book, the twilight zone companion by none other than Mark Scott Zickery. Um, very, very awesome. So, here we Hit go. Me. In the end, we see how the Martian differs from an Earthling as he lights a cigarette and drinks a cup of coffee using three hands instead of two. And again, it is very well done. The effect was easy to accomplish. Someone crouched behind John Hoyt, reaching an arm around and under one of Hoyt's real arms. The arm was clothed in the same materials as Hoyt's arms, and an overcoat was draped over Hoyt's shoulders to obscure the fact that the extra arm didn't originate from his body. With plenty of rehearsal to ensure a fluidity of movement between the three hands, the illusion was complete and perfect. However, not so successful was the way in which the Venusian, Barney Phillips, differed. In the end, he pushes back his soda jerk's hat to reveal a third eye. Unfortunately, it looked pretty much like one you might buy in a joke shop. It didn't <laughs> come that easy, though, Barney Phillips reveals. Quote, they had run a wire over my head concealed in my hair and one of the property men uh, was concealed behind me, manipulating the trigger on the wire to effectuate the rolling of the eyeball in the socket. They had done a very big makeup job. They made a cast of the eye socket. I guess they must have spent well over a day working with me fitting that device prior to the actual shooting of the show. Says Buck Houghton of The Third Eye, we tried that two ways. We had the actor with an eye in his head, and we were also going to try it with a double exposure. But the double exposure didn't work at all because you couldn't still see through it, and it wouldn't have allowed for hardly any movement, but we could have had it blink, which we couldn't do it with the other one. In spite of its failings, the third eye definitely had an impact, says Barney Phillips. Every time that, I'm, uh, that, every, time that that particular segment is televised, without exception, the next day I'm greeted by somebody, some total stranger along the ways, who says, my God, where's the third eye? <laughs> so... I got a question for you. Did you notice, even with all the wire set up and everything, in, in reference to the eye, d did it move? To me, it just looked stable. It, I, it does I move. Okay. I'm going to have to go back and watch it again more closely. I, it just looked like it just stared straight ahead. But, yeah, I guess originally, too, I read somewhere that he was actually supposed to have four eyes. Two on his forehead and then two regular eyes. But they had to go down to one because, for whatever reason, they couldn't get... I don't know, force eyes situated. So, yeah, pretty interesting stuff there. That's the behind-the-curtain stuff. Um, I didn't actually see it move. I have to go back and watch it more closely again. But uh, So, yeah, the great double twist is, you know, Ross killed everybody in, in, the, in the bus crash th through the bridge. And, you know, Barney Phillips, a.k.a. 
Haley is a Venusian, and uh, Ross is the actual well, Martian. Let me so, ask you this other question. Twist. Do you think, um, twofold, one, do you think that Ross made the phone call for the bridge to be okay, or do you think Barney, or, or do you think Barney made the bridge collapse? I, I think, think it was, it was Ross that one, made the fake one, phone call. Barney saying, I can't let this other Martian escape. I'm going to go ahead and kill him. You know, the, the, mm, the I didn't Soda think jerk. about that side. Mm. I, I thought it, I didn't think about that side of it. I've, I'm thinking more of the raw side of like, okay, the, the I got to get rid of all, I got to get out of this diner and away from these troopers before I get discovered. So I'm going to create this elaborate ruse through the phone call so that I can get them back out on the road and, you know, basically fake that the bridge is good and they'll fall through. And But my, but my yeah. question is, do you think that Ross would have done that? Do you think Ross, or do you think Ross was literally just trying to get away? And Barney's the one that called in to, to have the bridge collapse so that way he could trap the other Martian there. Yeah, I mean, either, either or, right? Those right. are all good... Uh, you know, explanations, if you will. But I thought it was funny a little bit that he didn't know what wet was. That Ross, wet? What's wet? Like, you know, and uh, Haley's asking him, well, you're not even wet. I thought that was, I don't know, that line probably could have been taken out. That late in the episode, like, he doesn't know what, I don't know, maybe he's brand new to the to the planet and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't know what wet is and uh Haley the Venusian had been here longer and so yeah I just I, that was kind of weird line but that's the end of the episode the the great reveal probably one of the the biggest I mean other than uh, what's the episode from season 1 the the double twist yeah exactly that's what I was going to say the stop at Willoughby I think it it this is the second one that I know of that has yeah. the double twist Right, and it's probably one of the most recognizable twists in the Twilight Zone. But uh, all right, let's move on to a little bit of trivia here. So near the start, just after Rod Serling's intro, the bus uh, company is glimpsed on the side of the bus. We talked about that Cayuga Bus Company. I'll strike that. We've already kind of talked about that throughout the episode. Um, after the bus driver realizes that he doesn't know who boarded the bus, Avery, the kooky, older-looking man at the counter, claims. She's just like a science fiction. That's what she is, a regular Bradbury. So Ray Bradbury later wrote the season three episode, Sing the Body Electric, in 1962. So Ray Bradbury was a contributor in the Twilight Zone in season three. And I think, Jimbo, you touched on this a little bit at the beginning. The young married couple, played by Jill Ellis and Ron Kipling, had a very short screen acting careers. Jill Ellis appeared in nothing else making this her only credit while Kipling was in only two other television guest spots. So the guy only had a total of three spots, and Jill here only was only appeared in this episode of The Twilight Zone. All right. Like I said before, we are, an, we are a podcast of everything. We've got trivia. We've got Model T trivia. we got baseball trivia here so here's a baseball trivia point for all you baseball fans in one of many baseball references by rod serling throughout the run of the twilight zone the state trooper asked the old character at the counter who had won last year's world series avery jack elam correctly answers the pittsburgh pirates four games to three over the new york yankees uh, this shocking upset by the underdog Pirates was completed by Bill Mazarowski's famous home run in the bottom of the ninth inning of Game 7. And as of 2022, remains the only such event in World Series history dating back to 1903. So, wow. Huh. That goes back a long way. The only home run hit in Game 7 in the World Series to win the game. Uh, Bill Irwin, who plays one of the bus passengers stranded at the diner, would 33 years later receive an Emmy nomination for playing the grumpy old man on Seinfeld in 1989. I talked about that a little bit. Bill Irwin apparently is the only actor to appear in both The Twilight Zone and Seinfeld. So those two shows respectively. Jimbo already talked about this in the initial draft dates. Uh, and how the title was derived from the spin-off popular television game show to tell the truth. 
the episode only required two sets. The interior of the diner, stage 19 on the MGM lot, and the highway countryside stage 11, which also included the exterior of the diner. The exteriors cost $350 to design, but the snow effects cost more than $600, and the interior of the diner cost $900. So just some little points of reference on uh, money was concerned. So the whole exterior only cost $350, but the snow itself cost almost double. Uh, Morgan Jones, who played the role of Trooper Dan Perry, had to record his line separately later that month because after the film was processed and cut, it was discovered that his voice had not been picked up well by the microphone. On the afternoon of April the 27th, he reported to the sync room, sync room A actually, at MGM to record his lines so that they could be synced to the soundtrack. Hmm. And I thought this one was funny. This is a good piece of trivia. Uh, Jack Elam who played the kooky old man, did not require much makeup for his role of the eccentric loon. Uh, basically, he already had uneven, discolored teeth, a bumpy nose, and his hair was receding and jet black, and of course, his protruding eyes. His left eye was sightless. This was due to uh, a boyhood fight, as a result of a boyhood fight, and was gifted to give the appearance that he was always looking over your sh- over his shoulder while the right eye appeared to be looking down or jabbing like a jabbing finger looking down. The purpose of the role, obviously, was to add the element of mystery to his character and give the audience uh, someone to suspect as the alien. Uh, in the script, the third arm and the hand of the space visitor was supposed to pick up the menu and the other two hands to light a cigarette. This, however, would have been a bit difficult even for three arms and an actor to speak his lines while looking at the menu so the effect was just limited to lighting the cigarette no doubt due to the sponsor's influence or their insistence actually this episode features a heavy product placement of oasis cigarettes so if you watch the episode literally almost everybody in the episode is smoking and uh they were smoking oasis cigarettes uh, actually, in the diner, five different people are seen smoking cigarettes. In the finale, when Ross reveals that he has three arms, the pack of cigarettes is Oasis, which can be pl- clearly made out on the screen. His comment about Earthlings, cigarettes are pleasing to him. They taste wonderful, is actually the sponsor's slogan. <laughs> they taste wonderful was their slogan, I guess. The sponsor's slogan was not even in the script, but the decision of product placement was... The alien from Venus, the planet Venus, played by Barney Phillips, was supposed to have four eyes. We talked about that. An extra two on his forehead, as indicated in the script. Makeup man William Tuttle was only able to add one eye, however, to his forehead by rigging a hidden wire. Jimbo talked about that. The hidden wire designed to allow the man off camera to move his eye from left to right. Uh, A number of the props in this episode were taken from a hundred yards over the rim episode uh the signs hanging on the wall and the jukebox itself uh were props used from that episode and i got a lot of this trivia out of the martin grams jr book the twilight zone unlocking a television classic all right and i got two goofs and uh we'll wrap with our observations and questions uh, one goof was when the customers are getting ready to pay about 19 minutes in Connie Prince, the, the young lady from the young couple stands up and her coat is on her arm. When she stands up one second later, when they cut it together, she is in line to pay and she's actually wearing the coat when they, when they cut those pieces together. And then finally, when the passengers leave the diner and board the bus, Jimbo, you might've noticed this, they get in on the wrong side of the bus. Yeah. They actually enter from the driver's side of the bus. Uh, you know, so that was two little goofs and that's all I have as far as trivia. I will move to you, sir. Give Eric, me your ratings, what, observations, and questions. But before we get to that, what prop do you, would you keep from this episode? The eye. The eye? The third eye. Yep. I think I'm going to have to go with the jukebox. Yeah? I think the jukebox would be pretty cool. I always wanted a real jukebox, you know. Every time I see one, if we're out of town on vacation, like at 50s, I had to go play it. I mean, yeah, yeah, of course, especially them old ones like happy days and stuff. So, yeah. All right. So, Eric, here we go. 
I think that the uh, cinematography is awesome in this. The lighting and shadow is superb, especially when it's going off of you. If the, I think Ross is talking, and it goes off, and it goes from real light on his face to dark to light to dark. You know, it, it gives him a powerful looking presence. Um, I like how they did the jukebox. I like how they did the snow. I like how Rod Sterling came from like behind that rock at the beginning from some shadow mm-hmm. into light. Um, I think the acting is really well done. I mean, Jack Elam's character, even though he may be annoying in this episode, it was the red herring that this episode needed. Um, the twist and then the double twist uh, was fantastic um, because even though I have seen this episode before, when I first watched it, I'm thinking, oh man, this is a great episode. Then that second twist just put it over the top. Uh, you said that uh, Ross might not know what what is. Well, if you think about Mars, there is no water. Whereas on Venus, it's what made up of like a bunch of water and electricity and all that. So I think that fit right in um, if you know your astronomy, if you will. Um, to me, this is a solid 8.5, maybe even a 9. Um, it is definitely one of the upper uh, episodes of season 2. It might make my top 10 list when we do our tragedies. Um, and some of the performances of this is outstanding. Um, I think um, that that overall, from from especially after that last episode we did, this is heads and shoulders above this. And this is one of the times, maybe one of the only times, besides Mr. Dingle the Strong, that when they use comedy, um, it, it actually worked. To me, this was a serious episode with a little comedic twist. I think it was outstanding. So for that, I will give it an 8.5, uh, closer to a 9, if you will, for this episode for me. So, Eric, let's hear your rant on why you didn't like this episode. No, it's it's not a rant, and I really can't put my finger on why. I think we've talked, I think I've actually covered all my questions and observations throughout the, the episode. I appreciate the dialogue very much. Uh, and again, I felt like this was a lighter version of the Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. I thought that was a, a better episode overall. I don't understand why it gets such a high rating. That I will, I'm coming around, I guess, to it. I can't say it's an eight and a half or a nine. I do feel like they they were on the nose with the subtle comedy in this. This was a lighter episode, but yet there was mystery and intrigue woven into it as well. Um, I don't know why I just can't get over it. It just, I don't know. I I wouldn't say it's a nine. I will agree with you. Let's talk about where we would agree. I agree that it's much better than the, the, the episode, the mind and the matter that that one was pretty, I don't know, pretty boring, honestly. And it, it, it intrigues me enough to where I wanted to go back and watch it again and again to try to pick up things but I don't. I can't put my finger on it. I just. I don't know. It's not. It's not one of my favorite ones. Uh, I don't. I, I guess it's maybe it's overhyped in my mind. Um, but it was good. I'm not going to take away from the fact that it was good. And maybe I'll come around and like it more. You know how, you know, uh, Mirror Image. I hated that one when I started, but then I watched it again and again, and it kind of grew on me. That's how these episodes a lot of times are. They will grow on you, and you'll be like, oh, that, that sounds about, oh, oh, that's kind of actually good. Oh, I like that part right there. So, it was good. It was better than okay. A lot of times I'll say, oh, it was okay. No, it's better than okay, but is it like one of the best episodes in season two? I don't think so. You think so? You probably would put it in his top three. <laughs> well, let's not let's not get carried away there, Cummings. I would, I would oh, say okay, it's in the okay, top okay. three. I probably, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to. What? We'll what have are you? To what, where are you rating this? Where are you rating this on a one to ten? Then I would say it's a solid seven. Okay, but I don't think it's an eight and a half or a nine. I'll but take that from it, you. It probably will. It probably will make the top ten if I'm being objective for season two just because but you'll never get me to move on the invaders episode i'm sorry i can't move on that one that one's terrible Uh, you need to go back and watch that again eric several times (laughs) but uh other than that yeah i mean it it, i would recommend it it's good for a watch it's classic it's highly acclaimed it's well known in the twilight genre realm it's it's got a lot of accolades behind it again the 
the the dialogue and everything is well written it drives the episode it bring it sucks you in with intrigue and yeah i just it, it it's it's light and at the same time it's very dark at the end when when we realize that the martian he killed everybody in a bus accident and everyone drowned like that gets super dark at the very end and he's you can tell his demeanor has completely changed so i can appreciate that you know, maybe I'll appreciate it even more when I watch it again. But yeah, I, I give it a solid seven. So moving on, anything in closing remarks that people need to be aware of? We well, are going to plan the we are we are right. We are coming down to the last episode of season two. I think the next one is the obsolete man or something like that. Yep, and it is the last. I love that episode. The la- well, here we go again. You won't. <laughs> yeah, but I here love we go that again. Uh, so yeah, and then we will be doing our tragedies for season two, which. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I still personally like season one a lot better than season two. I think Eric might disagree. Um, I just think it has more memorable scenes, more classic episodes than season two. But we'll talk about that Mm -hmm. in our finale. Uh, So look for that. Um, And hopefully by then we'll start trudging on to season three. Yep. And uh, I also wanted to mention that uh, I want to be a part of our reflection episode if you will on our uh, live show uh, and i can't wait to get together with you guys you maybe we'll have like a little friends giving or something me you and kyle and we can reflect on our, our fun night uh, that episode's going to be fun well eric you got to remember by the time you get this edited it'll probably be over and done with and probably way past thanksgiving <laughs> and probably oh that's be- true <laughs> probably hopefully that's already right. have that episode recorded by the time this comes out well yeah, our timelines get a little messed up, but I just wanted to mention that <laughs> in close. Maybe we'll put this one out before we put that one out. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, if you'd like to reach out to us, we are the tragedy cinema at gmail.com. You can join us on our Facebook group where we have a lot of fun. Um, uh, anything else, Eric, before we wrap it up? Nope. All right. I think this episode's coming to close. That's a wrap. And cut. <laughs> Incident on a small island to be believed or disbelieved. However, if a sour-faced dandy named Ross or a big good-natured counterman who handles a spatula as if he'd been born with one in his mouth, if either of these two entities walk onto your premises, you better hold their hands, all three of them, or check the color of their eyes, all three of them. The gentleman in question might try to pull you into the Twilight Zone.